arts and culture of many kinds are widely thought to enrich our lives and communities, even our health. But they're also the first to be dismissed as unnecessary frills in hard times. With a teeming creative community in Portland, we wondered what is the state of the arts, specifically paid gigs for performing artists. How dependent are actors, musicians, and their related production crews on old-school institutional arts opportunities? And how successful are arts entrepreneurs in carving out economic opportunities for themselves? In our first segment, we'll get an overview of the performing arts opportunities in Oregon, especially in Portland, and later we'll delve deeper into industry sectors like film, TV, and music. We have an A-list panel with us here in the studio. Eloise Damrosh, Executive Director of RAC, the Regional Arts and Culture Council. Tim Williams, Executive Director of Oregon Film, the Governor's Office of Film and Television, along with David Kress, newly elected president of OMPA, the Oregon Media Production Association, also producer of the TV show Portlandia, and Clara Hillier, who coordinates educational programs for Portland Center Stage. Welcome to you all. Glad to have you here. So first of all, Eloise, let's start with you because you had a wonderful event happened this week. Congratulations are in order for the Light of Fire Award, which is uh, for the RAC-led program, the Right Brain Initiative, right? That's right. Thank you. It was it was, it was thrilling to, to win that award. It was based on game-changing projects. Yeah. D- tell us in a nutshell, if you will, what is the Right Brain Initiative and what did it learn? Okay. So the Right Brain Initiative is in its seventh year and the whole idea in a nutshell is to provide integrated arts learning for children. Basically, what we do is work with teaching artists, artists who have worked in classrooms, and we give them professional development together with elementary classroom teachers so that they can integrate the teaching of the core curriculum subject matter that kids have to learn with the arts. And if I'm not mistaken, they were able to successfully demonstrate over time in rigorous testing that the arts education increased scores in things like math and reading. Absolutely. And even more so with English language learners, kids for whom English is not their first language. Makes sense. So it works. So that's kind of speaks to the why, why we are here, why we're concerned with this subject and jobs in the arts. So let's talk to Clara for a moment uh, because Clara coordinates education programs with Portland Center Stage. Tell us a little bit about the programs that you coordinate. All right. So we have Visions and Voices, which is a playwriting program. We go out into high schools to instructors and we're there for about nine weeks during their classroom with 20 students at a time and we coach them to write their stories and learn the skills of playwriting. Then we also take educators out into schools for free workshops called stage door workshops and these help the students engage with the material of the show, the background of the show, why Portland Center Stage picked that particular production and what's unique about our production. And then we also provide free tickets to schools that are Title I and then low price tickets for any other school or community program to attend Thursday matinees as students can engage with talkbacks. And we also have a teen council which incorporates high schoolers from all over Oregon and Washington. They see all of our shows for free and they receive training in theater. That's great. I'm curious about with some of the productions that are happening locally like Grimm and Portlandia which have kind of become characters where Portland's become a character 
character in the in these shows, how that's kind of impacted other people wanting to come to Portland and, and set up their shows here as well? Well, I would say uh, it's increased a lot. It's not often you get a TV series now in sixth season that has the name of the city in the title. Um, and we're very grateful that I was saying to somebody just the other day that one of the great advantages of Oregon in particular and the TV shows that we have, because this last summer we had four television series shooting here in the state. Um, one of the great advantages we have is people come here and they play Oregon for Oregon or they play Portland for Portland. And as you point out, that that is not only good for the city and good for the state, but it's also good for tourism. It's good for business. It's good for a lot of things. If you go up to Vancouver, B.C., for example, which has a lot more production than we do, none of those shows are playing Vancouver for, for Vancouver. So they don't get that knock-on effect. And what happens is we become a destination for creative people to want to come here and for creative projects to want to come here. And I think the good news is we now have a growing indigenous industry that can provide for that work that comes in here. So we're not just bringing in projects that are coming here and then going away, as David is a great example of. We're bringing in projects that are then being physically produced by people who have lived here all their lives and by crews that have lived here all their lives. And we're doing that on three or four TV series uh, every year. There's always competition for the incentive dollars. And is it enough? I believe uh, the legislature wasn't able to successfully come through with an increase this year. We asked for an increase in this last session and we didn't get it. We did get an extension in our sunset date, which means that we have a long-term system that is now sort of in place for several more years, which means if, uh, knock on wood, we we lose one of our series, we can hopefully get another one because we have a multi-year progress. Our incentive program is not as big as Louisiana or Georgia or New York or California, but we're a different market. And we do have an incentive program that does work to keep the projects that we have here. We do get two or three projects calling us every week and a lot of times we don't get those projects because we run out of money every year but the ones we have here are fantastic and we're happy to be hosting them. And for people who don't know, tell what the incentive program really is. Generally, I look at it as a uh, as sort of a, it's a rebate program, so it's cash money back but we don't pay anything back to the production companies until they have shown to us and we have verified that they have spent money here in the state. And in general it's, it's somewhere between a 10 and 15 to 1 ratio. So if something comes in and spends $15 million here in this state, our rebate system would give them back about a million dollars after they have proven to us that they have spent that money. So it's all about economic activity and jobs and spending money that stays here within the state of Oregon. And attracting the crews to our locations rather than, for example, Vancouver or elsewhere. Attracting the productions here. Um, I think the crews are here. And I, I see that on Grimm. I see that on Portlandia. I see that on the librarians, that the majority of the crews, the vast majority of the crews are people who have lived and worked here all their lives. So getting the projects to come here and base themselves here is the primary goal and then increasing the job base here which we have done over the last five years jobs in the motion picture and video industry according to the department of employment have gone up 70 percent since 2009 and there are now 350 production companies here in the state that are doing motion picture and video work david can you talk a little bit about OMPA and how they function in the local film and video tenant ecosystem yeah um, the OMPA was created decades ago as a way to help the indigenous film industry network and grow. It's been very successful. One point I'd like to make to sort of echo Tim's point is when a production comes in, a bigger production from out of state that's generated out of New York or Los Angeles, they'll bring expertise and gear with them that we then learn from. And it's enabled us to have a very, very professional crew base as we've learned. And I feel like less and less do they need to bring anything from the outside because we now have it here as part of our infrastructure. What is the relationship, Eloise, between productions that are going on here 
the state film office, Oregon Film, and the Regional Arts and Culture Council. How would you describe that network? I think we're all, in one way or another, investing in the arts community as a whole. And certainly everything that we do, we do through that lens. We exist to make sure that the arts thrive in this community and Tri-County. And that ranges from um, emerging artists to the future artists through education programs and the connection between arts and business. Uh, We've just taken that on in a big way. And I want to give a shout out to the voters of Portland for passing the arts tax three, four years ago, um, because that has greatly increased the ability of our arts organizations to thrive and therefore support artists. It seems like uh, the last 20 years, obviously, the web and the Internet has had impact at every level of all things. And I'm curious how how you guys have seen that impact the arts, film, video, that kind of thing as well. Well, from my point of view, it's it's made communication an incredibly strong tool because we can talk to anybody, anytime, anywhere. We have a much greater awareness of what's going on because of this improved creativity and communication. So have you guys seen smaller communities where you normally wouldn't have seen artists? Have you seen their work because of the, the web and the oh, internet? Absolutely. Okay. absolutely. Okay. It's also, it's collapsed the silos, for lack of, lack of a better term. So you have a really great cross section in, in the four of us here today because we're it's a symbiotic relationship you know the the cast of grim did an amazing production at portland center stage you know um, many directors that i work with are funded by rack to do some smaller scale documentaries that we then show you know at cinema 21 and there's this whereas before there was a film industry there was a theater industry there was a you know artistic community and they were somewhat separated because of the communication and the and the interconnection that is now going on with media in general it's all collapsed into each other so projects that we're all doing are going through all of our systems and in my view that's great because that's what's going to build the strength of the artistic community and make more jobs and make more work come in here that's going to create bigger companies interestingly enough i think that the collapsing is partly due to the internet but also strangely enough in the recession we saw more and more collaborations going on because people realized that they had less to deal with and so they turned to their friend and that's continued that the lines, as Tim said, between disciplines are much fuzzier than they used to be. That is a perfect lead into a question we just got on our talk board, which is an interactive feature on our website. How do you think the cost of living spike will affect the sustainability of people pursuing the arts in Portland? Who wants to take that on? <laughs> Well, I'll, I'll jump in and, and say that I think it's going to make a big difference if we don't hurry up and do something about it. Because we know that there's been this flood of, of young creatives coming into Portland over the last decade or so. Not to retire here, but <laughs> <laughs> um, to find jobs here and to find a place they can afford to live and, and afford to work. If we don't do something about it, we're going to lose a lot of those people. And that would be really too bad. So when you go back six years ago and we're pitching Portlandia as a concept, I assume to people back east. East, how uh, how responsive were they to the idea of doing a show in Portland when it wasn't quite the hotbed of creativity, probably, as, as they viewed it? Well, interestingly, the show came from a website that Fred and Carrie worked on as a, as a personal art project that, with no intention of having it air. It, it may still be rumbling around in the recesses of the internet. It's called... <laughs> It's called Thunder Ant, if you want to look it up. (laughs) But when they came with the show, it was really the idea of the show was to satirize modern urban living. And we've seen this shift from, you know, people moving away from the city into the suburbs to now people moving from the suburbs back into the city. And 
they part of their thinking was Portland was sort of ground zero for that activity. And because Carrie lived here and because Fred and Carrie had done that art project largely here, they thought, well, let's look at Portland to do it. And then in the process of that, as we were thinking of the name, the network was very supportive of the network is IFC, a terrific network, by the way. And they were very supportive of naming it Portlandia, partially because IFC, the independent film channel, before they were into programming that was original, they played independent films. And Portland was a great audience for them. We've always had a really vibrant independent film scene here. So they liked the idea of Portlandia, even though some might consider it too much inside baseball, only appealing to the people who lived <laughs> in Portland. But they were very supportive of that and suggested it, actually. Mm, interesting. Well, I know that uh, Portlandia just got signed on for two more seasons, right? So That's correct. Congratulations. Congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> okay, well, we're more on Portlandia in a moment, but before Eloise gets away, I want to have you talk a little bit, if you will, about prospects for funding for individuals and uh, group projects. What does RAC have for them and how give them some tips on how to make their projects stand out? Sure. Uh, we have a, essentially a tiered grants program. It's been around since the 70s in one form or another. And the largest segment is larger organizations, mid to, mid-sized to large organizations that get operating support from us on an ongoing basis. And that's the category that jumped up with the arts tax funds. But then below that, we have project grants that we're just now adjudicating for this year. And and that's in every discipline, and they taught about $10,000. And that's for individual artists and, and arts organizations. We have professional development grants for individual artists and small arts organizations. We give two $20,000 fellowships a year, and then all kinds of other opportunities, uh, including workshops, and we're kicking off a season in January. And you can find all of that on our website. The workshops are all really hands-on, very specific skill-building workshops, and and they're phenomenally well-received. So lots of opportunities for individual artists to get both support and information from us. We also have an extensive job bank on our website, and the website is crammed with information. And I know that uh, RAC does a lot of kind of diversity-focused help as well. Yes, we, we have two staff people who are actually working on our community engagement efforts so that we're taking our offerings and for example we do grants orientation sessions and public art orientation sessions and now we're taking those out into various parts of the community instead of asking people to come to us and making it a real effort to reach new portlanders and people who are locating here there is a, a new talent diversity initiative as well that's uh, coming up in the next segment that is a, an attempt to change images on the screen along those lines. So that is really good work that you do. And Clara, you wanted to say something about a topic that came up a few minutes ago, which had to do maybe with the educational aspect of that. I did. I'm trying to think. I of saw that. you made. It. <laughs> oh, I know. I know. I you made, make a, a really note. serious note. Okay. Um, um, <laughs> I did. Thunder yeah, yeah, um, But I also. I mean, I think a large part of why I wanted to stay in Portland was because of the art that was available. I had moved here for high school and then went to college locally, and my parents are musicians, so I was always looking to move away. But by the time I was in college, I saw our arts community, exactly what everybody was saying was that they were connecting and the branches were overlapping with each other. And I think that's vital, not only in our theater community, other theaters are working together, but theater and dance, 
theater music, music film, art film. At Portland Center Stage in our community programs, we have groups in that building that have nothing to do with theater on a daily basis. We have social hours with artists, we have galleries, we have dances, we have bands, we have poetry slams, and we're trying to do the best to show that the building is welcoming to all forms of art and all people in the community and getting people in there that might not necessarily stay for production but at least they're in the building engaging with other people. And a perfect example of that is uh, Portland Center Stage's partnership with Portland Radio Project. Exactly. (laughs) We're providing uh, artists for your local spins concert Mm -hmm. series every Tuesday night, and those artists get paid. They do. They do indeed. (laughs) That's very important to us. It is important, and we're happy to have that partnership with you. Coming up in our next segment, by the way, can you stick around, David? Okay. Must an artist be an entrepreneur? Should there be more diversity in casting? Something that Mark alluded to in local productions. And how do you get to be an extra on Portlandia? (laughs) Which is why I wanted to know if David could stay. We'll do those when we come back. Portland Radio Project, you're listening to Biz 503, a Portland-centric small business and startup talk show. Tune in Fridays from 1 to 2 at 99.1 FM for a live broadcast of the show. Or stream us online at prp.fm. We are meeting some creative entrepreneurs in this segment. With us in the studio now, Jacqueline Galt, film producer and owner of Galt Shop, film and TV production company. John Lee Hamblin, owner, founder, and acting teacher at Act Now Studio. You were talking about having both the creative side and going through some different steps and then eventually becoming an entrepreneur. Yeah, what I found was my knowledge gap when I was starting out as a creative was how do I make the connections? How do I get in front of distributors? How do I get in front of talent agents? How do I get in front of financiers? And what do I do once I get in the room? And I think that's where a lot of creative people kind of freeze because they don't know what to do. They don't know what steps to take to get there, how to put together their finance plan, how to talk to a distributor, how to talk to a talent agent. And so I took a step back creatively and kind of just threw myself into that world, going to conferences, getting my, you know, picking up the phone, traveling, meeting with anybody and everybody I could so that I could develop those relationships and then bring them back home to the people and projects that I work with locally. And and working with the creatives, how much do you spend time kind of market right sizing them? Kind of like Derek's quote, where you're saying, you know, that's an interesting project, but that's interesting to you, not really an audience. All the time. And a lot of it is helping, you know, starting just from the very beginning in the creation of a screenplay and saying, you know, who is your audience? What's what's your hook? What's your message? Who's going to care about this story? Why do you want this story to be told? And if they can't answer that, then they don't have a movie yet. So I know there's a, a local initiative for talent diversity that's going on right now. And you're partnering, as I understand it, with Cast Iron Studios and Lana Vinker. Yes. And what is the objective of the diversity initiative? The objective is to be able to have as many diverse people be able to get the training that they need so that when they're going into auditions, that they actually have experience. They're knowing how to go in and audition. They're knowing how to go in and get called back. When they get the call back, how do they then book the job? When she came to me a couple of months ago, she just had an idea idea about it, asked if I would be interested in working in that way. And I, of course, said yes, just because I believe always in training and getting experience and being comfortable in the room, the casting room. 
Is that a challenge in Portland? Well, because Portland is very white and that's the that's the bottom line. And so that's what they were finding is that they would go and, you know, casting uh, between Lana and Aaron Goodman, who's also a casting director at Cast Iron, would go and they would just try to find people who weren't white. I mean, that's the deal, <laughs> you know, and uh, they would bring them into the casting room and they wouldn't know how to, you know, slate their name. And so mm-hmm. the idea came from just that. We've got Grimm here. We've got the librarians. We've got Portlandia. We've got a, a significant mother. We had a film come through something like summer and so many of the actors they're white and this program that we are doing the diversity program we get to work with them myself and scott rogers of the scott rogers studio are we each have 16 actors for the next couple of weeks and i am just giving them all of the information that i have and and injecting them with it and we are working in the same way i am in any other class it's extraordinary fantastic yeah. it's extraordinary so there are actual workshops where right now that you where you're training people absolutely every saturday for from 10 to 5. I have 16 people. Scott has 16 people. So we've got a six-week program. So um, we each have our group for four weeks. Then we're going to switch the the group on the fifth week. And then on the sixth week, everybody is going in to Cast Iron to do a mock audition. And so they're going to go in as though they're walking into any regular audition with, you know, producers, casting director, writers in the room because it's, you know, it, it's a lot different. You're really great in your car or at home. You know, you I really can really nail it at home. <laughs> Especially in the shower. In the shower. <laughs> yep. And then you walk in the room and there's three or four people sitting back behind the desk and then what do you do? How can you still be of service to the work in that way? So. so there's been similar initiatives in the startup community where trying to increase diversity and to try to get into kind of the person of color community in Portland is a huge challenge yes. because it is such a white city. What, yes. what kind of ways do you work to get through to the to that group of people? It's interesting because when the day one, I mean, I even said to everybody, like, are you guys are probably wondering, why is the white lady trying to talk to you guys about being diverse? <laughs> and a couple people were like, yeah, kind of. But really, they're just wanting to get all of the information that they can. It's really become less about the fact that, well, I'm Latino or I am Asian or I am black. They're all actors and they want to work. And so it's really interesting because over the last couple of weeks, they are also so engaged and want to be there so much because they've had to actually fight to get in there. So I don't necessarily talk to them about how can you be a better African-American actor. It's just more about how can you start being of service to the work, right? Walk into the casting office, know what you're there to do, be able to not try to get picked, not try to book the job, because that really can derail an audition. Going in and trying to be liked or to get picked is the surefire way to make people act, you know, weird. Hmm. <laughs> Have you satirized the whiteness of Portland on Portlandia? I think we've satirized everything about it. <laughs> <laughs> You know, on this issue, I really feel like so fortunate to have Lana and Jana and Cast Iron Studios and Act Now Studios working on this initiative. What I've noticed, having been in the film business for 20-some years, mm-hmm. is I've become more of a believer in the idea that if you don't see someone like you in a role, it's harder to imagine yourself in that role. And my take on it comes more from behind the scenes, from the people operating the production, less about the actors. We have a lot of wonderful minority actors and Portland, and I'm glad that we're going to have more. But I do feel like as I work with young people, entry-level people, and they're wanting to assist them in their careers and then asking them 
where they see themselves in five or ten years, I see them identifying with other people who are working who are like that. Like a lot of young women who could be doing anything in the film business will say, I want to be a, a script supervisor or I want to be uh, in casting because they see other women in those roles already. And it's really rare when you see someone identify with, say, wanting to be a lighting director because there are only a bunch of men out there as lighting mm. directors. So I think this initiative is really important. The more people see people like themselves in roles, the more they'll self-identify with those roles and carry on. And it hasn't been that long since being a small business owner would have been an anomaly. I mean, maybe it still is. Well, you know, unless you're selling Avon. I think Avon and Tupperware were the the businesses my mom did growing up. But but yeah, you know, it's that attitude of being an entrepreneur is you have to be ballsy, you have to just go for it. And those, those kind of traits, women have kind of been traditionally taught are unattractive and who cares <laughs> not enough ballsiness in our way women I guess. <laughs> we're working on that actually just had a at netspace just had a women's pitch event two nights ago that was a sold out to a crowd of 50 people we had six women founders get up and pitch their startup ideas which leads me to want to ask a question hopefully somebody here can answer this or the question falls flat but so oregon storyboard is a, a local initiative to kind of foster development of media related startups men women everything but has anybody worked with them yet or kind of familiar with that whole yes i'm working on a on a project to incubate film work and we've worked you know had conversations with oregon storyboard they're doing something very similar um what we're trying to create is on a different scale but i love what they're doing and i think it's it's fabulous i think anytime that we can take our knowledge and and share it with others that are struggling that want to get there but don't have the resources it's it's a it's a rising tide scenario and we see that in film when the more projects we're Seeing in town, the more want to come here. The better our crew base gets, the more projects we're able to handle just purely from a production standpoint. So the more that we can foster and incubate and 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 share with one another and help bring each other up, the better we all are. I mean, it feels like Portland's very much on an upward spiral of, attra- spiral of attracting a lot of that talent to Portland. And when I meet with people every week, I mean, one of the things that often get, does get mentioned is Portlandia. I mean, people really think that that's the <laughs> lifestyle here. Which is one, one more thing about um, Oregon Storyboard. Vince Porter, who's with the governor, Kate Brown's Office in Economic Development, used to do Tim's job. Uh, he was the film commissioner. And when he first came to Portland from Los Angeles, he mentioned to me early that we had a great tech community. And he said, how come your tech community isn't talking to your film community? It seems like a natural partnership. And I didn't really think as deeply about that at the time as he did. And I think that was part of the this wellspring of people sort of saying, why aren't these two communities that are vibrant communicating? And I think Storyboard was sort of born through that. Very interesting. Well, this has been a great discussion. And we feel fortunate to have had all of you here. Jacqueline Galt from the Galt Shop film and television development company. Jenna Lee Hamlin, owner and founder and acting teacher at Act Now Studio. And I'm not even going to list all those guys that you've been seen on screen with because I'm so jealous. And David Kress, who is the incoming president of the Oregon Media Production Association. Congratulations, David. Is that something that people, you really want that job and there's a groundswell of support and you're thrilled or is it something that you kind of have to do? <laughs> well, I've been really fortunate. I've, I've made my career here entirely 
And uh, with the exception of one year when we opened a branch office of our film production company in Los Angeles. So I feel like it's important that that I give a little back here now. I also really love watching the film and television business grow in Oregon. It's really gratifying. David Kress producer of Portlandia, uh, and just getting a couple of new seasons from IFC. So congratulations on that as well. And in our next segment, we're going to drill down on entrepreneurial musicians after a short break. Portland Radio Project, you're listening to Biz 503, a Portland-centric small business and startup talk show. Tune in Fridays from 1 to 2 p.m. and at 99.1 FM for a live broadcast of the show. Or stream us online at prp.fm. Welcome back to Biz 503. Today our topic is jobs in the performing arts. With us in the studio, Lori Hughes, music booker for McMinimums, one of the largest providers of economic opportunities for musicians with dozens of venues in Oregon and Washington. Jeremy Wilson, frontman for the Dharma Bums over the years, now a solo act who has established Jeremy Wilson Foundation to help musicians with health care and promotion queen, Lisa Lapine, music industry consultant, band manager, and music journalist. And welcome, everybody. Hey there, guys. Hey. Hi. Thanks hey, for having hey. us. Regarding like minimums, I'm wondering how many the, the incoming amount of requests to do gigs must be just overwhelming. How do you how do you manage that? And how many gigs does McMinimums do a year? Well, I personally book around a hundred shows a month, and then I have colleagues who handle other departments also booking a hundred shows a month. I mean, at any one time, we're probably promoting around. 300 shows or more so it's yeah it's overwhelming the requests that come in weekly i mean it's hundreds hundreds of requests weekly i was just telling jeremy out here um we were talking and i was like i am shocked that i don't have enough dates we have so much wealth of talent coming in it's incredible that is really true and you have so many venues a brand new one opening up is it bothell yes bothell washington anderson school just opened last week oh how did it go we were crushed it was awesome. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One of our announcers, who is a local musician, Amber Sweeney, has a gig there. I just yes, Amber is coming next Friday. Yeah, yeah. she's going to play the Thorndike Room. Um, so a little small space there, intimate little solo show. Yeah, we're excited. I was Fantastic. just talking to her today, actually. Yeah, so. that's great. Yeah. Well, I know McMinimans likes to think of its company as just a collection of little neighborhood spots. But truly, it has become an institutional provider of artistic opportunities in our region. Yeah, absolutely. 100% agree with that. Would you give any uh, suggestions or advice to musicians who might want to get gigs there? I mean, as the booker? Yes. Continue to submit your materials even if we don't get back to you because just because we haven't responded right away doesn't mean we're not keeping an eye on what you're doing. And make sure that you get us your materials in the most efficient way possible. If you send us links to anything streaming, tell me where you're playing. Tell me a little bit about your history in the area because that's important. I want to know what other markets you're reaching because some people like to, as customers, like to just hang out at their spots and maybe they just see you in one spot, you know, but it'd be nice to have a little bit of diversity if you're reaching other markets, you know, try to get those people to cross 
pollinate a little bit, but sending me everything in one email so that I can easily access it, that's the best way because if, honestly, if you send me a CD, I don't have time to take it out. Everything's going to the internet these days. So that's honestly the best advice that I can give as far as getting materials to me. Make it easy for you. Yes, make it as easy as possible because I have 30 seconds. You know, I'm going to check in on you. I'll put a radar on it and check in on you after a while and keep, you know, kind of keep following what you're doing. Great. Lisa, what do you see for as new musicians that are out there and you're helping them, tr- trying to promote them? It's such a web world where everybody's everywhere on YouTube, iTunes and everything else. How do you, uh, you kind of suggest people rise above the crowd and get them in front of other uh, people as well? Well, I am a consultant, so I'm not doing it for people. I really talk with my clients about the importance of brand and looking at brand through a different lens, not just a corporate brand lens, but a lens that's really looking at what is their authentic authority? What is it that they have that's really valuable and marketable and how to put that into visual? Uh, that's graphics. It's how they dress on stage. It's how they write their bio. It's it's getting a strong package so that when they send that email to Lori Hughes, <laughs> it pops out for her. They stand out from the others. There's such a reality of the glut in Portland and many places that many people can make music. Maybe many people want to be playing music. And so there's quite a diversity of people that are beginners to people that are world class. And to sort yourself out in there is part of the challenge. And yes, it's about online. A lot of it's about online. However, sometimes you get a package in the mail nowadays and it's like, oh my gosh, I haven't gotten one of these in a while and it can sometimes cut through so i'm not always about it only being online that is interesting so talk about the ethic i sense in portland and i've just heard this among our musicians that we're associated with here at portland radio project that there's a sense that everybody has to work free there there is Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of bartering a lot of trading and it's not always to everybody's advantage Lori's. Yeah, I want, I want to step in on that. I understand that maybe musicians feel that way, but we definitely, McMinimans don't feel that way. We want to make sure we pay our artists and pay them fairly. So, yeah, we definitely, it's it, you should get paid for your work, absolutely. Well, I think so too, but why do I have that impression from musicians? Because it's very difficult to find places that will pay you for your work. McMinimans is the shining example. They set a, a sort of example of a guarantee system where you play X amount of time, you get X amount of money. Uh, many places are run by either the door and you may or may not work very well there because you may not make very much money or they want you to play for free and for tips or a percentage of the bar. There's lots of models and it's difficult. It's very difficult to find that right combination of, of performances that will pay you. I think one of the biggest problems is that there's really no barrier to entry these days. I mean, back in the day prior to the digital revolution, you know, you, if a, if a CD or LP ended up on the, on a booker's desk, it pretty much meant that there was either a very, very well organized independent group or they were on a label, which, you know, and so I think that even then, even if that band only drew 10 people the first time through town, they drew 30 the next time and 100 the next time. You know, the clubs knew that they were willing to develop these groups. Now, you know, I, I feel sorry for the bookers not being able to see through all the, you know, see through it all. And the one thing I was going to say about the advice to bands, you know, don't put the marketing before the substance. You know what I mean? Really learn your, you know, have three sets of material ready to go. You know, be entertaining. Don't, you know, be friendly. (laughs) 
you know, and dealing with your with your booking agents and stuff like that. I mean, I'm always so thrilled when I get word back that even 20 years ago, the, the Dharma Bums guys and everybody were gentlemen. We were out there, you know. Yeah. It's still a small town in that sense. (laughs) Talk about your experience as a working musician, Jeremy, because that is a thing. I mean, we've been suggesting that musicians have to have certain qualities in order to be able to have some sort of financial stability. I mean, I really, I mean, I don't want to be a politician here, but in some ways I I need to be a little bit. Everyone from the clubs to, to... to every the musicians everybody is working hard and it's a a difficult climate to stick out but i do think that the clubs are shooting themselves in the foot when they're not offering decent guarantees to decent bands like up the ante if you want to up the people coming in the door and stuff i mean and one of the things that the jeremy wilson foundation does is that we do talk about the fact that you know musicians are considered independent contractors right so there's no minimum wage for a musician and that's that's difficult you know and i do think that there's one thing i've been thinking about a lot that clubs could do and i really just wish they would do it and that is that when at the end of the night when somebody goes to pay their bar tab you have a slot where you can tip the your waitress but they should also have an entertainment tip there and i guarantee you that most people at that point on their visa and stuff are going to put an extra five bucks even ten bucks mm-hmm. For the entertainment because they're going to appreciate it and if clubs did that across the board i think that that would be a you know a no pain way for uh the clubs to uh you know obviously they have to account for the money but that's being a business what are you seeing regarding you know the kind of movement towards having djs in clubs where it's just a guy spinning music who's not a band or a musician or something like that is there a movement towards that still further? To- you know, it's been kind of nice to see it kind of the pendulum swinging back to the authenticity. I love this word authenticity. I've been hearing so much. I feel like we're hearing it in political, you know, everybody's missing grassroots. They're missing real reality. And that's why I just really suggest that bands learn, you know, become great, you know, do, learn a lot of songs. You know, you don't have to go perform before you're ready. I mean, what's so wrong about playing in house concerts and, and getting your, your, your crowd there because I think that it's important for bands to recognize that they're professionals as well, you know, and that, you know, you can't always be mad at the club if only 10 people mm-hmm. show up. I mean, you know, and it's, and believe me, it's hard to, to get people through the door. I do think, though, that the clubs are standing in their own way. There's some very unfair practices that the clubs just do as a standard, right, which is i.e. that everything, the employees for most clubs, i.e. the door person and security and even the lighting and sound, is all paid for through the door and the the door money, the five bucks to get in, right? You know, the patron that's coming in, they think that five dollars is going to the band, right? But there's hundreds of dollars in expenses even to play a downtown club in Portland before bands see Penny One, right? I don't understand why it's the band's responsibility to pay for employees of a club that's going to make thousands of dollars in drinks. It's just not fair. And cover was $5 back in 1987 when I started in this industry. You know, have we seen an increase? Mm -hmm. No. That is so interesting, Jeremy. I did not know that. Yeah. Yeah, good point. Is there an organizational, you know, banding together? Well, I mean, mean, people have tried. I mean, there's there's free trade music and different people that are trying to do things. But, you know, um, I was at a a thing last year that Rack put on, and I, I, I got the biggest round of applause when I said, band, stop playing for free. Just mm-hmm. stop playing for free. You know, it sounds kind of crass, 
but stop playing for yeah, free. It really <laughs> sounds like sounds like good advice. What would you say in just uh, consulting with numerous bands are maybe the one or two biggest mistakes that bands make in their careers? Well, I think one of the bigger mistakes is wanting to try to make your living from music too soon, too early. I just had a client move up from California was going to make his living here and he got booked a lot, played a lot of McMinimins and after a couple months he's like, oh my gosh, I can't do this. It's like, you know, I got to get a day job. And once he made that decision, he's got the balance now of the day job with the work, and I think it's going to go better for him. At a certain point, then he can jump into it. But there's a there's a fallacy about wanting to be a working musician, and I'm always like, you know, it, it, the path to that is not an easy path, and you have to work towards it and find your way. And so that's probably one of the biggest things. The second one is, and this is my pet peeve, is get a good name. The name of your band is. <laughs> 80% of your marketing, if we don't know who you are or what you're doing by the name, it really slows you down. You know, that we're in a marketing society. We're in a society that listens with their eyes and how it looks and what the name is is part of how they're going to show up. So that's my little pet peeve. Get a good name for your band. And I think, you know, being, I mean, the working musician, this, this title, working musician, you know, I mean, so what does that mean? It's like if you go, I, it used to happen all the time being on the road. And, and stuff like you show up in uh, Des Moines, Iowa or something and you accidentally show up in some biker club or something like, you know, and they're like, we don't have any interest whatsoever in your original music or whatever, you know, <laughs> and what I'm trying to say is that like put the ego aside and be prepared for any environment. You know what I mean? That's, you know, why not have 15 or 20 cover songs in your back pocket that you can pull out and blow everybody's minds and go, you know what? We made it through the night. You know, we made our 500 bucks. We can move on to the next town and, and play a concert in the next town or something. But I just think that it's important. I think that I think the digital thing, as wonderful as it is, because it does encourage the DIY, it encourages, you know, everybody to be involved. But it also really uh, takes away from that quote-unquote working musician or that professional mentality that is, you know, inspiration is 99% perspiration, you know, and if you don't have that, uh, you know, it's not just pushing a button and putting it on Facebook, you know, it really is creating, that's what Lisa was saying, you know, yeah. bring something to the table, I mean, go out hard. there and inspire people. It's hard work, you know? too. It's, it's, it, you are an entrepreneur. There is a lot more than just making the music. I think also what we see in Portland that is a positive is that there is a really strong music community. Mm. I really advise people to find their tribe. The tribe of people that are either similar to you with the sound of your music, but maybe they're similar to you in what they care about. Maybe they're all about bicycling and the environment and that's what they're singing about, even though you're punk and I'm folk, that there's something you have in common and that it might be that the goal of making money, as as fair as that is, isn't really what the goal should be. The goal is how do I reach somebody? How do I really share what I have to share and, and have that reciprocity? And by finding a tribe that's working on that together, that's where I've seen scenes jump up. You know, all of a sudden three bands or four bands are connected and then those shows are bigger. You know, I could fill the Crystal Ballroom back in the day with some of those artists because they had such a strong tribe. So that's often something I, I had advise and not just because it's going to get you there get you money but the the beauty of that camaraderie the 
the the the flavor of of working together on music on creativity that's bigger than just your own ego or your own project and i think um if i could just add into this because i know you and i have talked about this before lisa finding the room that's right for you if you're asking from the booker's perspective also adding into being a working musician understanding that just because a place offers live music doesn't mean that that's the right spot for you and your tribe different clubs have different personalities different needs different wants from their music programming so it's also important to understand that if a booker or a talent buyer is saying well you're great but not right for the room or i don't have a spot for you that it's not you know it's not a dig it's that you know we have our side that we're trying to do from the programming so it really is all working in conjunction forever and a day ago seattle had grunge music and is there a portland sound right now or is it just in a diy I don't know that we're defined by any one genre. I'm going to give the musician the last word on what the sound of Portland is. Okay, the sound. (laughs) You know, even with grunge, for instance, you know, I mean, having been labeled grunge back in the day, that was... Don't you would never want to say that to our faces because we hated that <laughs> that name. You know what I mean? Right. What I, what I really think that we're not. I don't think musicians are connected by a sound. I mean, that's kind of like we're not going over to his house and then his house. Right. You know, like we create a sound that is a Portland sound. I think it's much more of a mentality, and I think that's why people moved to Portland. I mean, like back in you know what I would call the day. You know, back in the Satyricon days or right. whoever you want to. Do. I mean, back then it was simpler why because there was only one place in all of oregon where the freaks could all go like hang out together. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know and it was a safe zone too right. now we've got I mean? mcminimins no. That's right. <laughs> well, well actually the mcminimins on hawthorne there the barley mill and, yeah, and those types of places you know they were it's just it was a it was a large niche of people but you didn't have this if if you wanted to go have an interaction the facebook of the day was getting in your car and going on the freeway and mm-hmm. going to mm-hmm. the venue mm-hmm. and going to a live place having a tactile physical experience with music you know and stuff so i think really i love what lisa was saying about you know your tribe you know and i think we do have kind of a big tribe because i think we have a big hearted family here in portland i mean my foundation alone through the use of seriously i bet you four or five hundred musicians over the last four four or five years have have been part of it to help give out almost three hundred thousand dollars in assistance to their their fellow musicians and artists and stuff Mm -hmm. you know so i think that's the kind of community we live in whether you're colin malloy and and, in a you know you know gold record platinum record level or whether you're an up-and-coming group there does seem to be kind of a desire for goodness and and Mm -hmm. and to do good things with this music and i'll say that if people want to learn more about the jeremy wilson foundation and your assistance to musicians uh, in their time of need we have links on our website to that so wonderful jeremy wilson jeremy wilson foundation Lori hughes mcminimans booker and lisa lapine the promotion queen thank you so much that was really a great discussion thank Thank you you so much thank you you very much good to have you here uh join us next week when we'll be talking about food desserts Desserts. oh no (laughs) that's so disappointing okay deserts that's not as fun and the many everywhere (laughs) and the many innovative businesses that are popping up to improve access to groceries Have a great weekend, everybody. Hope to see you next week on Biz 503.